All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Steve Kirsch is one of the more fascinating entrepreneurs we've been lucky enough to speak to on this show. Going all the way back to the 1980s, he was the inventor of the optical mouse. And back in the days of desktop software suites, he brought FrameMaker to the world. He also founded Abaca Technology, the spam filter company, and One ID. Today, he's the founder and CEO of a really interesting new startup that he'll tell us about called Token. But of course, we wanted to speak to him mostly about the founding of the search engine and web portal InfoSeek. Steve recounts for us how InfoSeek was born and thrived during the dot-com era and gives us the outline of his career in one of the more comprehensive conversations we've been able to have with a truly serial web entrepreneur. Small bit of housekeeping here real quick. As you know, I attempt to get new episodes out every Monday, but occasionally the company I own demands a bit more of my time than usual, and this project is forced to take a temporary backseat. Next week will be one of those times, as I expect to be on the road uh, Detroit, and other places, so there will be no episode next week. The next new episode will be March 30th, so mark your calendars. In the meantime, please enjoy this great chat with InfoSeek founder Steve Kirsch. Steve Kirsch, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Great to be here. Uh, I always uh, delve a little bit into into people's education and background um and a lot of the people that we talk to get an early start in tech and boy definitely <laughs> definitely you did too how did you find yourself uh in the computer room at uh ucla in 1969 right around the right around the birth of arpanet uh well i lived uh, very close to ucla and I had been exposed to computers uh, at a very young age, uh, since the uh, sixth grade in elementary school. And uh, so I was always looking for opportunities to learn more about computers that were closer to home. And, it, you know, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time, that UCLA was a short bike ride away. And, and they had uh, people that had computers and were doing interesting things. And, uh, you know, I just happened to be... Uh, you know, wandering around and and uh, hooked up with the right people. So it's a lot. A lot of it's by chance. So you're just a, a precocious kid that that wants to get to where the computers are at, and and you just sort of uh, introduce yourself, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. It's like uh, you know, looking for uh, bigger bigger computers than what I was working on uh, previously, and you know, where's the closest, biggest, bigger computers? And yeah, they were at UCLA, and so yeah. You know, it was just uh, really just luck. It was, you know, I did not do any research about the ARPANET or anything like that. It was just like, hey, where's the next biggest computer? But you do befriend some of the people that are involved in the, the starting of ARPANET, uh, including uh, Vint Cerf, right? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. It, uh, so I worked on the third floor of Belter Hall and at UCLA, and I uh, got to know all the, the people there, and, and they were actually very friendly and tolerant of uh, a young uh, junior high school kid um, wanting to learn more about computers. And, um, you know, so it was uh, mutually beneficial that I would work because uh, I tended to work in the off hours. Uh, so I would work uh, like, you know, 3 a.m. in the morning or um, and the, the reason for that is, well, there were there were incentives. So if, if I worked at um, when other people weren't at work, then I got to use the data point terminals and these data point terminals were running at 2400 baud. And to me, that was like, wow, that's like dying and going to heaven. And there were CR, these were CRT terminals. Mm-hmm. And if I try to use things during the day, the, the, all of the terminals are, are so busy with the, the people who are hired to do this stuff that the only ones that were available for me to use were the 30, Model 33 uh, ASR teletypes. And those things ran at you know, 110 baud uh, or 300 baud. Uh, and it, those things are just super, super slow and they're, you know, typing on paper and, uh, and it was just not a fun environment. And so that's why I, I chose to work at night where I could work at 2,400 baht on a CRT terminal, way more cool. Well, and when you say work, I mean, they're letting you work on some projects that, that, that the, the, the larger group is working on like don't you write one of the first messaging programs or almost like an email client for the time yeah yeah so i wrote an, an uh, email application uh it was not an internet uh email application because the internet didn't exist at that point um it was uh an application that ran on the uh, xerox sigma 7 and that allowed the team members to communicate with each other over email even, but it was a local email. It was a mail um, uh, that you would send messages to other people on the system rather than uh, to someone else on the internet. And I read, I, this is neither here nor there, but I read that, that you also had a job repairing pinball machines at the time. Uh, one of my, yeah, one of my summer jobs, I, mm-hmm. I got a job repairing pinball machines and that's because it paid $45 an hour. And as a high school student, there were, uh, I didn't find any other jobs that would pay more than $45 an hour. And I had experience, um, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Um, I had experience uh, in fixing pinball machines because my father uh, bought a pinball machine and it was constantly breaking. And so I kind of said, well, well this is interesting. I wonder how you fix this. And sort of uh, learned how pinball machines worked. And, um, you know, it ended up being a pretty good deal because you could earn a lot of money in a very short amount of time. And the, the, the places that ran the pinball machines um, were, were happy to pay me $45 an hour because the alternative was to pay the professionals who were charging, you know, $60 an hour. So, you know, it worked out well for me and it worked out well for, the, um, uh, for my employer. You end up going to um, to MIT. Was that um, did, did Vint Cerf uh, suggest that to you? Talk you yeah, MIT? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. It was Vint. I said, yeah, I, I went to Vint, and I said, so where do you think I should go to college? I'm really interested in computers. And he said, well, you can go to MIT, Caltech, or um, uh, Carnegie Mellon. Those those were the uh, the big places at the time. So uh, I'm not sure on the chronology of this. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I I believe. When you're at MIT, you're doing a lot of programming in, in Lisp, and Lisp, for those that, that wouldn't know or wouldn't remember, um, the, the input, one of the input devices were early mice, uh, uh, my, mouses. <laughs> so um, you're at, at this point where not a lot of people are using mice um, with computers, uh, you are, and it occurs to you that there could be a better way than the mechanical ball mice of the time, and so you uh, you knock together and invent the first optical mouse. Um, yeah, that's right. So the list machines uh, were using mice um, made by a guy named Holly, who um, uh, developed mechanical mice and uh, for for Xerox and. 
those were the kind of the only mice that you could get. Uh, but the problem is they kept getting clogged and, uh, you know, you'd roll them and sideways and the mouse wouldn't track it because the tracking mechanism got stalled or the ball wasn't rolling in its casing and so forth. And so I thought, you know, this is kind of a waste because the list machines were $200,000 machines and uh, you couldn't use them. Um, the keyboards were great. We had cherry, cherry keyboards, which were just awesome. Um, but the mice were horrible. And so I thought, well, you know, there's got to be a better way to, to do this. And if we can get rid of the moving parts, we'd have a much more reliable tracking mechanism uh, than the, uh, the ball mice. And, um, and, and these were using metal balls at the time uh, rather than rubber balls that the, the you know, newer uh, mice used that, that were invented since then. And so, uh, so I came up with a way to um, use a checkerboard pattern and a, a four-quadrant optical sensor, and it could then determine uh, very accurately uh, which way you, you were going. And that, that subsequently got refined to use multicolors so that there were two colors of lines. And so I had, um, I was able to create a pattern where uh, inks were printed in infrared such that they would be, uh, I had an infrared LED and a red LED and I had lines on the paper and the lines were such that under the infrared LED, you'd see the horizontal lines and under the uh, red LED, you'd see vertical lines. And so I took a very difficult uh, problem and just broke it down into two uh, really easy problems to solve. And so I just alternated lights, um, which would then ex expose a set of lights. And then I had um, a uh, four quadrant optical detector in uh, uh, both directions. And uh, the reason for the four quadrants is because I could then uh, work them in differential mode. And that allowed me um, to avoid any sort of calibration of levels, you know, because it would just use the, um, it would take the signal from one and subtract it from the signal of the other one, which was designed to be um, 180 degrees out of phase uh, based on the line spacing and the spacing of the sensors. And so uh, that was the design. Uh, it was a, the initial design was a checkerboard one, and then we went to the, uh, uh, the two different lines with different colors. And so the, that was the sort of the first version of the, the optical mouse. And it was such a simple technology, we can, it, it could be implemented um, with a very uh, simple uh, programmable computers that you had at the time. Um, so we had, you know, pretty basic chips that you could program in assembly language um, to go and do all the logic required to count the lines and to uh, present an RS-232 uh, interface uh, out of that uh, that could then be plugged into a com computer and interpreted. And so that all worked. Um, so it was, you know, putting together the idea, uh, putting together the hardware to do it, and then programming um, the computer uh, uh, to do that. So you do, you, 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 start to shop it around to to the computer makers at the time um to to see if they want to license it and like you, you even take it to apple at some point yeah so um i got an appointment uh from some friends of mine so i got an appointment to see see steve jobs and so the um i got noticed that yeah um you could meet with him and and i think i had like three weeks and at the time i hadn't built anything so I had to build um, all the hardware and write all the software in three weeks while uh, being a student at MIT and not failing any of my classes. So that ended up being quite a challenge, <laughs> uh, especially since I had to you know, learn a lot of things to be able to do that. Um, but uh, I, I did have some help from people um, and, uh, and we were able to put it together and in time for the demo, and it worked great. And then uh, St Steve Jobs looked at it, and he said, well, you know, great concept, you know, love it, but you need to lose the pad. And I'm like going, yeah, wow, uh, <laughs> you know, so close, but so far, because how do I do this without a pad? And so I didn't think at the time about the, you know, looking at the microstructure of, of um, uh, surfaces 
as a way to detect motion, and that required more sophistication in terms of, of what I was able to do with just simple logic gates and, and so forth. So, mm-hmm. um, so uh, while, um, you know, and so things just um, went forward from that, um, and uh, the design got refined over time, and, um, you know, sort of the rest is history. Right, and and I know this is uh, skimming ahead slightly, but um, you eventually do create a, a company called Mouse Systems Corporation um, to 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 market um, your mice, um, and that that was your first sort of successful startup, I would say. Yeah, I I out of MIT, I took a job as a uh, software engineer for Rome Corporation, uh, doing office automation software. Right. We were using convergent technologies workstations. And uh, uh, and at night I would moonlight on on the mouse idea and try to refine that. And eventually I quit my job and um, did mouse systems uh, full time. And um, so we, we then started producing these things commercially. We created an interface so it would work on the PCs so you could use it with spreadsheets like Lotus One Two Three. Uh, was around at the time. So it was really cool to be able to use the mouse to navigate your spreadsheets rather than have to hit the, um, arrow keys, uh, the, yeah. the arrow keys um, constantly. And so that was a big hit. Uh, Sun Microsystems was building a workstation. They needed a mouse, and they didn't like mechanical mice, so they, um, they gave us uh, some big orders. Uh, and, uh, and so that was just really helpful in getting the, the company off the ground. And uh, rolling up the success of of, of that company um, sort of leads you to your next company a few years later, um, which is would be called Frame Technology Corp. But it was a it was a company that that you seed founded to essentially um, develop and market um, software that uh, someone else created, which was. Uh, the FrameMaker, the the uh, publishing software called FrameMaker. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, sure. I uh, when I was at um, Mouse Systems, uh, because we sold to Sun Microsystems, I got to know a guy named John Gage, who was their sort of their chief science officer. And John was always into doing crazy things. Um, and uh, he's uh, yeah, John was quite uh, eclectic in his interests. And, uh, we were talking one day and he said, Hey, I ran into this, this, uh, this young guy, Charles Corfield, and he has, um, the beginnings of what might be a, a competitor to interleaf. Um, and he's just this super smart kid. And I think you should meet with him. And so I followed, um, uh, John's advice, and I met with uh, Charles, and I was impressed by what he did, and I, um, I thought, mm, you know, this has potential, and I said, hey, why don't we uh, uh, get together, start a company? I, I, I can hire some other people that I worked with at, at Mouse Systems or that I, you know, ran into, and um, and I think we can make a go at this, and you know, so eventually be, we became a huge um, competitor to Interleaf as a little startup company, and we got a lot of lucky breaks from digital equipment corporation uh, helping to fund us and Toshiba corporation was uh, helped to fund us as well. And, um, and so without uh, really any venture uh, capital financing or, you know, not a heck of a lot of business experience, we created a, a company which eventually got acquired by Adobe systems for half a billion dollars. Right. Which brings us um, to to what I, I'm interested in talking about, um, which is the idea that um, starts to form in your head around search, but it wasn't internet search. Um, you were you were messing around with, with CD-ROMs at the time, and CD-ROMs uh, of like a magazine catalog that had a search function, right? Yeah, that was um, computer. It's called computer library, and it was a CD-ROM, and you had somewhere around a hundred or so might, might've been more, um, computer publications, uh, that were a lot of them were Ziff Davis, uh, computer publications that were put on a CD ROM. And the beauty of this is that you could stick the CD ROM into your computer. You could type a few search terms and in just seconds, 
you would get the, all the articles that were re- relevant to that search. And it was just an amazing ex- experience. And the great thing is that even though we had systems like dial- Dialogue was, was um, big back then, and, but the problem with Dialogue is that it was super expensive. You know, a, a, a search would cost 2 or $3 uh, to find something. And that, that sort of price penalty uh, to do the search, you know, a $3 search, and then you were paying $5 for the article and it just got really expensive really fast. Whereas the beauty of computer library, it was a um, uh, fixed priced uh, subscription and you could search as many times as you want. You find as many articles as you want. You can read as much as you want and you just paid that one fixed price. Um, and so I thought, wow, this is a great concept. Um, and wouldn't it be great if, we can make this available to people on the internet. Um, uh, uh, these and 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 make it available at super low cost because we could uh, the volumes would be much higher. And so the initial idea behind uh, InfoSeek was to have to do a to do what Dialog did, but do it at a much grander scale and at much lower cost. And so it was originally a sort of fee for service you would pay we would give you like 10 free hits or whatever but you'd have to pay for if you went beyond that and so it was a little while later that we discovered that it was much better to give people uh, free results and to use that as a traffic magnet and then charge for advertising right because let's let's uh frame the timeline here um this is uh 1993 that 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 you start infoseek right um, that sounds, yeah, that sounds about right. Okay. So this is, I mean, the web exists, but it's not, it's not even what the web it blows up to become in 1994, 1995. So what the search initially is, um, is, is people are searching for what? Well, it's, um, w- when we created InfoSeek, uh, 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 Mosaic, uh, was the big browser at the mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. and of course that's turned into you know Mozilla and um, uh, and turned it well and Mosaic uh, guys you know essentially started Netscape and that so it turned into Netscape you know which eventually turned into Mozilla, um, so that um, so we were the the primary search engine we ended up being the primary search engine for for Netscape and that drove a ton of traffic uh, our way because people wanted to search the net. And so we, we actually started off by focusing on computer publications and um, that wasn't too fruitful. And, and we thought, okay, we'll, we'll do this internet search thing as a sideline. And it be very quickly became our, our main line of business that uh, people were um, much more interested in searching the net and finding things on the net um, and that we could help with that rather than, rather than searching computer, computer publications. Right, and when you start InfoSeek, you're starting it with your own money this time from from the the previous companies succeeding, right? Yeah, and we we got uh, venture money uh, early on uh, from a number of investors, uh, and so that that really helped in terms of being able to um, start up the company. When when you do pivot to okay, the web is is really where <clears throat> where this business should be. Um, this idea of, of search and things like that. Um, what are the what are the competitors at the time? Is, it, has Excite launched? I know that Yahoo was probably launched, but that was more of a directory than a search engine. So who who were the who would you look at as your competitors in that space? Um, when we first started, uh, I, I, Lycos um, was there. Um... And there were some like Metacrawler, I think, might have been uh, in existence or, you know, was there soon after. Um, and then Excite um, came on uh, a bit later and AltaVista came on a, a bit later. Uh, so we were really the there, – there were a few alternatives uh, for search, um, but we were um, – you know, Lycos would probably be the the biggest competitor uh, at the time. When uh, you you mentioned that you you pivot to okay, uh, the web search is is going to be where where it's at. Is is it because of the volume? Is it because of the web exploding? 
Oh, well, it, yeah. I mean, when we got uh, the deal to be uh, – when you hit the net search button on Netscape, at mm-hmm. first they they were just listing all of the search engines, and then uh, we paid them a ton of money, and we be you hit net search, and you would get our search engine um, as the sort of the, the, the top of page uh, for that. And, uh, and that was just driving a ton of page views and a ton of revenue uh, for us. And the revenue, uh, you mentioned that you, originally your idea was to do some sort of, you know, pay per search or subscription model. But so when do you make the pivot to, um, to advertising supported? Uh, it, it wasn't, it didn't take too long for us to figure out that it would be much better to do the advertising support. You know, at first we were giving people, Hey, here are 10 free search results. And if you want more then here's how to pay for it. Um, and so it went from that, um, we hired a guy from, um, Wired magazine and Bill, his name is Bill Peck. And, uh, Bill was a, um, big, uh, um, help in terms of our drive to the, the, uh, uh, cost per click and the um, uh, the um, uh, the you know, what we charge per thousand impressions and you know so he would be selling on on impressions so we would say hey you know, would get uh, uh, it would be ten cents per thousand or whatever and uh, we also developed the uh, banner ads and uh, so we had we created. Um, a reasonable size for the banner ads and uh, got everybody to standardize on, Hey, this is the size of the banners that we run and that you could put any content you wanted in that, like uh, animated gifts and so forth. Uh, but you had a, a stick to that size. So the first um, ads that we had were banner ads and we tied the banner ads uh, to keywords and, um, uh, and that's kind of how it began. There's a lot of other uh, innovations that that InfoSeq was responsible for. I mean, you guys had had tons of interesting patents, like um, you, you know, uh, even uh, counting clicks on a, on web page advertisements, um, distributed search techniques, and things like that. Um, but I don't. Did you did you guys ever actually? You only had those patents defensively. You never actually um, exploited those patents, right? Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, we uh, there were uh, more it, a combination of two things. One is defensive, but I would say it's more to um, uh, for a competitive edge, so that if we had the patent on this, then a competitor couldn't duplicate that. And so that was the the more valuable thing was sort of a, a underlying threat of litigation than than any real litigation because nobody really uh, violated any of our our patents. So what what's your role in the company? Are are you ever the CEO of InfoSeq or are you basically the the technologist and the and the idea guy? No, no, I was the CEO for for quite some time at at all the companies that I've mm-hmm. um uh that I have founded. But at, but at some point um you you hire outside people, you you bring in CEOs to try to um ramp up the business. Right. And um we're uh I've, I've read that maybe you feel like um, some of those people weren't the right people. Uh, hiring is always a tricky thing, and I hired some good people and I hired some bad people. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's been true throughout my career. And, you know, we'd love to only hire great people that um, uh, that work out spectacularly well uh, throughout the life of the company and um, you know, you make some mistakes along the way, but, um, you try to, to recognize that you made a mistake and, and fix it and, and move on. And sometimes that's hard to do that. You may recognize that you made a mistake and the board doesn't, uh, I think typically, uh, boards of directors of startup companies are, um, very slow to, um, slower than they should be to make a change in, in the CEO. Because uh, that's the number one job of the board is to hire and fire the CEO, and I think that boards in general, um, the the big mistake I've seen is not pulling the, the trigger fast enough uh, when you have the wrong guy in place. And 
but you don't want a board to be trigger happy either. So it, it's a delicate mix, but in general, I've found that uh, there are a lot of VC firms that are, are not good at um, basically recognizing that they made a mistake when they approved the hiring of a CEO and, and have been too slow to uh, correct that error. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the questions that I've, I've, I've spoken to, uh, you know, Bob Davis of Lycos and, and George Bell of Excite and um, I, I, I'll grant you that it's easy for me to ask this question in retrospect, but is it possible that one of the mistakes strategically that was made was this whole move towards becoming a portal that basically all of all of the search engines did um, in the later 90s? Um, the idea I being think, that, that that would take, yeah. take your, your focus off of search as your core product. No, I know. Yeah, I know. I, I live this. <laughs> so um, I was um, much more of the opinion that we should do the best. We should stick to the knitting and do the best search engine that we could possibly do. And we should be, you know, is much more the Google philosophy of, hey, let's index the entire web. And it's really important that be, people be able to find anything they want. And what was interesting is they got a lot of pushback from the product managers saying, well, there are only 10 million interesting pages on the web and nobody really needs to, to look at um, more than that. And we should, just in, we should just spend our time indexing the most relevant, interesting 10 million pages on the web. And that will provide a lot of value because then people don't have to sort through crap uh, on their searches and it'll be fast and, um, uh, we'll check that box and uh, that if we really want to expand um, our market that we should do things other than search. And so that was the thinking at the time. I, um, uh, my gut feel was that that was a mistake, that, that uh, we should be the biggest, fastest, largest and do a kick-ass job at search. And, um, but uh, other people disagreed. And uh, so that's that's the reason that we got into this portal thing. And if you look at, at a company like Yahoo, they were extremely successful in expanding their uh, their directory and doing more than just directory. Um, and so that was kind of like a success case that we could look at and, and emulate. Uh, and so uh, that's uh, that's why we went in in, in that particular uh, direction. Right. That's. Uh, I'm glad you brought up Yahoo because even though obviously we're we're thinking of of Google when we're looking back at this retrospectively, but at the time it was Yahoo that that sort of um, was the king of the hill amongst the the five or six major search engines or search sites we should say. Um, what do you at the time or even now? What what would you place their success to? Was it was it branding? Was it um, I don't know the 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 image, the friendliness, the what what do you think it was that that made Yahoo rise to the to the head of that pack? Uh, well, being there first helped a lot. People didn't have a way to browse uh, the internet to find out what's out there, uh, and so Yahoo was out there as a a directory that people could use, and um, 
they they did a good job executing it. It was fast. Uh, it was simple. It was easy to use. It w- had a lot of good information and it was being expanded by editors. Um, and it was useful. And so they did a lot of things right. Um, and, you know, so, you know, part of it is being lucky, being in the right place at the right time. And part of it is having a, a, a great product that was simple and easy to use and, uh, and provided a lot of utility for people. So, um, you know, they, they did uh, really well in, in their space and we did well in our space. And InfoSeek um, eventually uh, is, is purchased by, by Disney and becomes part of their their uh, go.com strategy or, or their go.com portal I should say um, what was the decision to to sell to Disney was it just that the 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 money was so big or was that you felt like if you could get uh, a company with that level of resources behind what infoseek was doing that maybe you could take it to the next level yeah, it was basically a way to say, hey, we can get access to more stuff. Um, that Disney had a lot of content sites. You know, Disney had acquired ESPN. Um, uh, and, uh, well, it was the, the, this, um, actually it was StarWave that they acquired. Uh, and StarWave provided the technology um, uh, behind some services like ESPN and so forth. And so... Uh, Disney had uh, asset, other assets as well, you know, proprietary content and so forth. And so w- the thinking was that, you know, they they came to us and, and they wanted to, to buy the company because Disney wanted to create a web presence for themselves. And we looked at it as, wow, you know, this is a pretty attractive off- offer compared to our, you know, public valuation and as um, – uh, you know, the board has a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders to look at, um, at any offers that are out there. And, you know, this seemed attractive in a way for us to, to move the company forward and um, uh, create a more compelling offering or more extensive offering uh, to our customer base. I, as I mentioned, I've, I've, I've spoken to several other uh, early search CEOs and I've asked them the same question, which is, um, it, it, it could you imagine a different world where um where in it, for your in your case infoseek specifically had maybe remained independent and could have become a strong competitor to google or what google eventually became um had we turned them down, uh, could that have happened? Right. Um, yes, uh, it could have happened. Uh, I think it would be less likely to happen because there wasn't the focus on search that there was on Google. And I think that, um, you know, in retrospect, it was a mistake for me to have said, you know, hey, uh, you know, you, sh- you guys should go with my gut feeling as opposed to your, you know, logical argument that we should, you know, de- de-emphasize search. And so... Um, I think that was a uh, a strategic mistake that probably wouldn't have been reversed if we had turned down the uh, uh, the the uh, the offer from Disney. And so, I think that um, you know it's just really really important to rather than look at at sort of uh, make logical arguments. The more important thing is is really to listen to your your customers and understand where your customers are. Um, asking you for and, and what they want. And we knew early on that uh, the, 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 the two biggest things in a customer's mind when they use a search engine is, is the two things are it's fast and it finds what you want. And in order to do, we were certainly fast, um, but if you're only indexing 10 million pages, it's not going to find what you want. Because right? there's a huge, long tail of information. And, um, you know, anytime you, you deviate from that, listen to your customers and make sure you're, you're always um, uh, exceeding customer expectations. Uh, that's when you can run into trouble, especially if you have a, a competitor that pops up with, with better technology. 
Now, again, uh, a lot of people that I talk to on on this show um, are serial entrepreneurs, but I feel like almost you you more so than than most because I mean you've been starting companies going back to to 1982 and and after the Infoseek sale, I think you stay at Disney a little while, but you're already on to to other companies like um, Propel. Um, uh, is it Abaca, which um, does the the spam filter uh, software, right? Yep. Um, yeah. And today you're with you're with One ID. Uh, yeah, and I started another company after that called Token. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Token. Well, Token um, is all about fixing the problem with payments because uh, you know our most modern payment rail is uh, the ACH system and. Mm-hmm. It turns out it's it's not credit cards. It's actually the ACH system, and that moves forty forty um, trillion dollars a year. And uh, so most of the money is used, and uh, most of the money in America is moved uh, through ACH. And what's remarkable is that the the technology has not changed significantly um, at all in in four decades. And so I, I've done an ACH transaction where it took me 11, where it took 11 days to move uh, 10 cents from one bank account at, uh, at Wells Fargo to another uh, one of my bank accounts at Wells Fargo. 11 days is a long time mm-hmm. to move 10 cents. And, uh, and there are other things as well. You know, with credit cards, we're always seeing credit card breaches and Apple Pay, of course, there, there are issues with the security in that. And, um, uh, you know, there, there are just lots of, uh, and there, there, there are break-ins where credit card numbers are exposed and people's identities are exposed and so forth. And so we've been using really very, very old technology uh, in order to move um, uh, value. Uh, in, in, and value in most cases is money, but um, uh, so we think of it as as payments, and we've been using old technology to do that. We've been using very old paradigms um, for uh, for that as well. You know, credit cards are very very old, and you know it's based on sort of fifty year old shared secret technology that nobody's supposed to know my credit card number except for the person I give it to, and they're supposed to forget it as soon as I give it to them. And you know, the world has moved on, and the attackers. Uh, that are are trying to steal money from the systems, um, and they do a pretty good job. The Apple Pay rates, uh, the fraud rates, are uh, six or seven percent for some vendors. Um, and and Apple Pay, you know, they spend a lot of time um, on the the security aspects of that. Um, but so there, the the point is that the the attackers are always out there, and because we're using the, you know these payment rails that were put in. Uh, 50 years ago um, that fundamentally haven't changed that much. I mean, there've been some incremental improvements, especially in the credit card area, uh, but much less so in the ACH area. Uh, And so basically we have a pretty old antiquated system based on really old technology. And the, the people that are trying to exploit these systems are using the latest and greatest tools. And so it's just really time that we updated um, how we move money, and we rethink the paradigms uh, that we use to uh, to move money. And that's what token is all about, is in saying, look, there's a better way to do this that where we can leverage secure identity, that we can leverage trustable federated identity, that we can leverage uh, digital signatures, uh, we could leverage... Um, autonomous uh, digital agents that are working for us and so forth. And so uh, we can take this very simple thing of, hey, can you pay me $5, uh, a request? And we can handle that in a completely new, cool, um, slick way that gives us a lot of flexibility and you know, open architectures and digital signatures and all sorts of things that give us a lot of flexibility for how we can go and respond to that request. And so token is all about enabling um, a new infrastructure uh, so that we can have uh, a payment system, which is really like um, uh, modern age, um, you know, way better than anything we've ever seen before. And so I'm being a little bit, um, 
cautious in terms of I'm, I'm not trying to reveal everything about right, how right. it works, but it's you know other than it's yeah it'll be a, a a game changing thing I think for for payments and you know I I tell people look this is the future of money and if that sounds pretty grandiose and and so forth but I can tell you that the people that we disclose this to they say yeah this is this is really cool this is really big this is impressive you know and all that stuff and so. Uh, so that's what I'm involved in now is is changing uh, the way that um, that people get paid. Well, uh, let me just ask one question about that. Hopefully, this is broad enough that you can answer. Is the idea to to bring the banks on board with this system, or is this yes. to create a, a whole new system outside of the banks? No, uh, it, it's 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 a little bit of both in that the the system is agnostic in terms of where your assets are. And so you can have your assets in a bank or you can have your assets in a virtual currency and we're agnostic uh, to that. But we do that, but the whole system is designed to be compatible and compliant um, with uh, rules and regulations of, of nations and, and states um, that, uh, that regulate uh, the flow of money. And so unlike Bitcoin, which was... Um, kind of designed in spite of regulation, um, we were designed uh, to be totally compliant um, with, uh, with regulations because I have no interest in, in going to jail. I have no interest in creating things which uh, are illegal or might be illegal. That's just not, uh, mm -hmm. I just don't think that's a very productive thing to do, nor do I think that that's a, um, it's not a productive thing to do um, for the consumer, and it's not a productive thing to do for the um, uh, uh, f for the country either, because these the the regulations are designed f to protect consumers, and they're also designed to um, uh, guard against money laundering. And so, uh, you know, those are those are things that that we'd like to do, and uh, we'd like to comply with. Um, so. Uh, Steve, if, if I could close um, by asking um, it seems like a personal question about about your health, because I know that many years ago now you were diagnosed with a rare form of, of blood cancer and we're given um, a, a dire diagnosis of only a few years to live. But uh, you're obviously still with us and sounds like you're still thriving. So I, I wanted to find out. Um, I, I wouldn't be able to pronounce the name of the disease, but I wanted to know um, how that's progressed. Yeah, so I was diagnosed with uh, Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia uh, a while ago, and uh, I think it was back in uh, 2007. Is right, that, yes. Does that sound about yes, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and so they, uh, usually you have about five or six or seven years to live, Um so I, I'm still around and kicking, and people look at me, and they, they, they were, a lot of people always come up to me and say, how's your, how's your cancer doing? Didn't you have cancer? And, uh, and they can't believe it because I look at, you know, the same, and I look healthier than, than, um, than a, a lot of people who don't have cancer. And um, uh, so I've, been, uh, I've gone through a series of drugs, and uh, finding cancer is all about um, picking the right drugs and, uh, and, and being lucky. And I happen to be lucky in that I, the, um, I, I, the one thing that wasn't lucky is my cancer is incurable that it, or in generally it's incurable that there are very few people that, uh, are able to get the cancer eradicated, but it's a very slow moving cancer. And so the treatments are very good at, um, slowing down a very slow cancer and so uh, or basically stopping it from progressing and so I've had I've been on drug treatments that have arrested the uh, progression of the of the cancer and it's not like um, it, it's a blood cancer and so as long as you keep it at bay um, you're uh, you're in good shape and you can leave lead a uh, a very long life uh, and sometimes you get unlucky and the, the the cancer transforms uh, but if you're careful about the, the treatments that you select uh, and you, you get involved and you get educated about what the alternatives are and you insert yourself into the decision-making uh, chain, I think you get uh, better results. And so my, um, 
when I was diagnosed, uh, there were a lot of alternatives, and I uh, looked through uh, the pros and cons of each alternative. And I was the one making the the final decision in terms of which uh, which treatments uh, that I would accept. And I didn't go for anything that was really uh, and I didn't do any of the strong chemo treatments. Uh, because of the potential side effects down the road and because of the, um, the possibility that the cancer could transform into something that would be more difficult to treat. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've taken a, a path of let's try the, the stuff that has the least side effects first uh, before we go and we march out the heavy artillery that has a lot of collateral damage. And I've been lucky enough to find drugs and, um, you know, pick paths that were successful for me um, and that, uh, uh, that has kept my cancer at bay. So, so that's the, the quick story of that. Well, that, that's, that's great to hear. And, and I know that um, you're, you're a noted philanthropist. I know that you've also um, done a lot to, to contribute to, to researching for that disease as well. So. Uh, yeah. So, you know, um, help where wherever we can so that's um you know where where i can make it where i feel i can make a difference to try to um get involved and you know pitch in so well steve kirch uh thank thank you for um thank you for coming on the podcast and um going outlining what is really a, a remarkable uh entrepreneurial career that as as you've outlined um doesn't doesn't seem to be <laughs> ending anytime soon so um Good luck on your future endeavors. Thanks, Brian. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader